by a show of hands, just to get us rolling this morning, how many of you have gone into full-on Christmas prepper mode? Show of hands, Christmas prepper mode. Confession is good for the soul. By a show of hands, how many of you, you're the Christmas procrastinator crowd? You're not a Christmas prepper. You're like, ah, oh, you know, it'll come and things. All right, great. There's, there's, there's normally two extremes that people lean into. There's some of you here, the Christmas prepper crowd, I actually realized that for some of you, it would be wise to get an Amazon.com accountability partner between now and, and Christmas. <laughs> because you can go to some extremes. And if that's you, if you fall into that category, I got good news for you because you're not alone. In fact, according to a recent study, I, I found this fascinating the average American spends 66 hours preparing for Christmas. So for the math savvy among us here today, that's more than eight full-time work days devoted to grocery shopping, cooking meals, shopping for gifts, filling up cards, wrapping presents, traveling to see family and friends, and inflating those giant figures they came out of nowhere. But all of a sudden now, there's giant figures everywhere. There's a six-foot Snoopy on my front lawn. It has nothing to do with baby Jesus or the incarnation, but he's there, and he's lit up, and he's awesome. <laughs> he's glorious. But I wonder, in light of all the time and the energy and the merriment and the money that we spend preparing for Christmas... How much time is actually spent preparing our hearts for the miracle of Christ's birth? If we're being honest, and I hope if we can be honest anywhere in God's house, have a moment of honesty, I imagine most of us would admit that we spend more time thinking and planning for the Christmas holiday than we do reflecting on the miracle and the wonder of the Incarnation. Thankfully, this is why we're slowly working our way through Luke's gospel this Advent season. Because we want to go into Christmas with our hearts fully ready and prepared to receive and worship and adore our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? To help us do that, you guys need to get warmed up this morning. Okay, so the, a few amens. To help us do that, we're going to get some help this morning from an unconventional New Testament prophet that spent his whole life and ministry preparing people to meet Jesus. We know him as John the Baptist, the camel hair wearing, locust eating son of a Jewish priest named Zechariah. And while John might not typically be the kind of guy that we'd invite to our neighborhood Christmas parties, the truth is, there's no one better suited to prepare us to encounter Christ this Christmas than John. So with your Bible ready, we're going to jump into the scriptures and the gospel of Luke in chapter 3, where we left off last week. We're jumping right in at verse 1 of chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonicus, with Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Thank you, baby. Make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is God's word. We're going to stop right there. Before we get much further in this chapter, I want you to notice how Luke inserts this passage from Isaiah to shed light on the purpose that John had been sent out into the wilderness to prepare God's people to have a face-to-face encounter with Israel's long-awaited Messiah. So there's this Verse right there where it says in verse 4 that John was a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Today, as we consider the way that John prepared people for Jesus, I want to give you two pairs of words that you can write down today. These word pairs are going to help us prepare our hearts to encounter Christ by taking notes from the ministry and the life of John the Baptist. Here's two word pairs this morning. Repent and believe. Word pair number one. Word pair number two, obey and exalt. Repent and believe, obey and exalt. Now, the thing that hopefully you'll see come through in the text this morning is that these word pairs are tied together. You can't have one without the other. Our repenting is fueled and shaped by what we believe, and our obedience, our obeying, is fueled by what we exalt in. So we're going to unpack each of these word pairs and see the interplay of how they're the foundational core of how John the Baptist prepared people for Jesus. So let's begin with word pair number one. In order to prepare our hearts to encounter Christ more fully this Christmas, first, we must repent and believe the gospel. In verse three, straight out of the gate, Luke tells us that John the Baptist went into the region around the Jordan River proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I imagine that for some of you, your defenses go up a bit when you hear terms like repent or repentance. Sadly, over the years, 
these words have often been associated with picket signs, angry, hellfire, and brimstone preachers on street corners, and a host of other unloving, awful things that have nothing to do with biblical repentance whatsoever. As a result, many people today end up dismissing something that was central, not only to the ministry and the message of John the Baptist, but Jesus as well. In fact, when Jesus began his public ministry in Galilee, Mark tells us that Jesus went around proclaiming, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But before you're tempted to imagine Jesus or John the Baptist furrowing their brow and scowling, scowling at others as they declare these words, listen to what Jesus had to say about repentance later on in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. Jesus will say that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Friends, listen, in a very real sense, whenever we remove repentance from Christianity, all that we're left with is a cheap, joyless, counterfeit gospel that cannot save and change your heart. You can't. You'll strip Christianity of all joy and power to save when we remove repentance from Christianity. That's why every revival and gospel awakening in history, mark it down, it begins and is sustained by people repenting. So if you want to experience the kind of revival and awakening that we've been talking about throughout this series in Luke, we must begin by getting a better biblical understanding of what the biblical writers mean by repentance. Contrary to what some might think, repentance is not simply feeling bad, feeling kind of a vague sense of remorse over sins you've committed against God and others. It's not just remorse or an emotion. In fact, it's far more than an emotion. As we'll see, it's actually a transformation, a transformation. So if you're a note taker, write this down. I want to give you this morning a helpful definition of repentance. The way that Jesus and John the Baptist understood repentance is invitation to repent. Repentance is an internal transformation of our heart and mind that results in an outward transformation of our actions. Inward transformation that overflows into outward transformations that really reorients our relationships, our actions, our words, that alters the trajectory of our daily lives. That's what the biblical writers mean when they use this word, repent. Now, all true repentance will inevitably lead to new actions. 
It will inform and change and move the furniture around in, in our life and impact what we do. But this change always begins at a deeper level inwardly with what we believe and hold to be true. That's why Jesus and John the Baptist never go around and just say, repent. In fact, you won't find one place in the New Testament where anyone just says, repent. It's always repent and believe. So Jesus went around proclaiming repent and believe the gospel and in Matthew's telling of this same baptism account where, where John the Baptist is going around and proclaiming this repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Matthew tells us more of the message that he proclaimed in Matthew's Jesus story. So in Matthew 3.2, we're told that John the Baptist, part of his message was proclaiming the same thing Jesus went around proclaiming. And he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, folks, the whole reason that John called people to repent and be baptized was fueled by this fiery belief that the king of the universe had come to earth to set everything that's broken and disrupted in our world straight, which is why Luke actually includes this somewhat cryptic promise that involves roads and paths from Isaiah chapter 40. Let's read this again in verses 5 and 6. After being told that John the Baptist is his voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We read, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What is Isaiah talking about here with roads and paths, with mountains and valleys? Well, here's what he's talking about, actually. Back in the day when these words were recorded, paved roads were incredibly rare. Unless you were uber rich and powerful, you couldn't commission a road. So the roads were, were terrible. So when a king needed to travel with his entourage or with, with his military troops, he faced a problem and a challenge because the roads were either non-existent or impassable. So when a king was going on a great journey, he would send heralds and a group of his engineers ahead of him into the towns and villages where the king was going to himself go. And they would come town to town and announce, the king is coming. Stop whatever you're doing. And we need to prepare the highway for the king. As this word would spread from house to house and town to town, every able-bodied man, woman, and child from the villages would take to the streets and go to the work of making new roads, removing boulders, filling in steep gullies, replacing old, narrow, crooked, washed out 
paths and roads with smooth, wide, level roads fit for a king. That's the picture of repentance that Isaiah gives us here. Replacing old crooked roads and ways that lead to death with new roads and ways that lead to life. That's what repentance looks like. Leaving behind old roads and saying, for years I was on this road called bitterness. It destroyed every meaningful relationship in my life, but I couldn't forgive others. But then one day I met a king and his name was Jesus. And on that road, that encounter with him, it turned around everything within me and now I'm on a new road. I'm on a new road where I can forgive other people and my life is no longer on this crooked path and road. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody saying, these are all my old roads. I know the name of every single one of those roads. I'm no longer on those roads anymore. I'm on these new roads with my new king, Jesus, who loves me and is with me and for me. Folks, if we believe that Jesus Christ is this kind of king, when this king comes into our life and we encounter him, how arrogant it would be for us to expect this kind of king to adapt to our roads and ways. Our roads, our ways, they adapt to him. If we believe this Christmas that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that's so great that mountains bow down before him, do you think that there might be some roads in our lives that we could say, Lord, that, that road, I know that doesn't honor you. So I'm no longer going down that road. Forgive me, Lord, for expecting you to adapt to my road and my life and my ways. I'm going to adapt to you, even if that means tearing some mountains down and filling in some valleys and doing some work, being honest. That's what repentance is, and it's fueled by this belief that that's how great our king is. Friends, whatever you do this Christmas, please, please don't forget how great this king that has come for you is. If you believe that he's this kind of king that Isaiah talks about, where mountains tremble and bow down before him, you will too. You will too. And it will move you not only to repent and believe deeper in his goodness and his forgiveness of you, but it will move you to obey and exalt him with everything you've got as well. Which is where Luke's story leads us next from repenting and believing that the king has come to obeying and exalting this king that has come. Let's continue in Luke chapter three where we left off. Let's jump back into this story at verse seven. He said, therefore, to the crowds that had come out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. According to John the Baptist, to prepare the way for this great king that has come, we not only need to repent and believe, but also to do what John says in verse 8, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So our repentance needs to be coupled by, by this biblical call to actually produce fruit. So what you need to know is when the New Testament writers use this term fruit, it's always a metaphor for our obedience or our actions or what we do, new behaviors that we do that exalt and honor Jesus. That's why three times in verses 10 and 12 and 14, you probably saw this question from different groups of people, they come to John the Baptist and they ask a pretty straightforward question. They, they say, what shall we do? Tax collectors and soldiers come to John and he tells them, don't abuse your power and extort people. Take advantage of them because you are in a higher echelon of power in society, so don't abuse your power. To others, he says, don't be greedy. Instead, be generous. Share from your excess with those in need in your community. According to both John the Baptist and Jesus and every New Testament writer, the true nature of our faith is always demonstrated by the fruit that we produce. That's why later on in, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 7, Jesus in a fair, famous parable about fruit and trees, he says, every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So good fruit is the result of a good tree that has a good root. And bad fruit is actually produced by a tree that's, that's a bad tree or an unhealthy tree with a bad root. This metaphor of fruit and root and the connection between our obedience and our actions and what we do, it's connected to, to the root of who we are. So fruit has to do with what we do. Our root actually has to do with why we do what we do. In verse 9, that explains why John tells the religious leaders that come out and want to be baptized, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Part of what John is trying to impress upon us is that our motivation that drives what we do, it matters to God. Why we do what we do matters to God. During the Christmas season, parents have an uncanny ability, almost a superpower, to know when their children are obeying in order simply to get more presents under the tree. It's like a spiritual gift that is given to parents to discern, like the wisdom of Solomon, when kids are obeying in order to impress you so you get on Amazon.com and buy the Xbox 360. (laughs) Because they're obedient. It's my boys all of a sudden when they're aware, like, oh, wow, mom and dad, like presents under the tree. Uh, there's, there's this weird thing that overtakes them. Their voice changes, you know, and they, they say things like, dad, you know, I'm just compelled to tell you today, you know, you're the best dad in the world. And then they list all the things that they've done, you know, like clean the bathroom. I took the dogs out today. Huh. I'm, I'm pretty amazing, you know. And, and, and we can see it. You can see it a mile away, you know, that this, this obedience, it's actually motivated, you know, by, by this desire for you just to actually be broke and spend more money on, on, on presents. And, and so what is interesting in, in this passage is that it's not just a command to actually go out and do all of these new behaviors. What John the Baptist is trying to do is he's trying to pull back the veil and expose the root motivation that drives these people that want to get baptized. You see, for the religious leaders in the story, we know by other gospel accounts that some of the folks that turned out to be baptized on that day from Matthew's account, that there was Pharisees, scribes, and religious leaders. And instead actually of getting a clear answer when they ask the question, what shall we do? You know, um, instead of John telling them, do this and, you know, be generous. He, instead, he rebukes them and he calls them a brood of vipers, which I think is so amazing. He just doesn't pull any punches at all. But what he's doing, he's not just rebuking them. He's rebuking the motivation that's driving them. You see, they're not there just because they're aware that they need a savior and they need their sins forgiven, they're there and they want to obey and get baptized because inwardly they exalt in their own obedience and righteousness. Inwardly, what, they, what drives them, so much of their obedience for the religious leaders who went the extra mile to obey the Torah and do God's commands was not a love for God, It actually was this self-exaltation of their own righteousness, this inner pride that, you know, I'm Abraham's descendant. And really, they're trying to earn their way into God's favor through these acts of obedience. And John sees that, that their root is wrong, and he exposes it. And he calls him a brood of vipers. He calls it out. But then notice what he says after that in verse 8 in the passage that we read. 
he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. When John the Baptist says, God can raise up children from these stones. Do you know what he's trying to impress upon us? He's trying to teach us that Jesus has not come. This king has not come from heaven to simply offer moral, righteous people a set of rules to obey or an enlightened example to follow. He's come to change the very root of who you are, not to make you nice. He's come to make you new. In fact, this very same God who can, through his omnipotence, raise up children from inanimate stones, he sent his king, born of a virgin, and we killed him. He was buried, laid in the ground, but on the third day, a stone rolled away, And our King, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, rose victorious from the grave in order to transform stone-hearted sinners like you and like me into sons and daughters of God. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the hope of our salvation that spills over into every song in the Advent season. And if you believe that good news, even a little bit, you'll not only want to obey this kind of king, you'll exalt him with every fiber of your being. How can you not exalt a king who came for you, a king like this, if you believe that Jesus is this kind of king, you'll bow with the mountains and you'll give him freedom to change any and all things in your life. You'll leave behind your old roads and you'll worship him. Amen. Interesting enough, and there's so much here that we can't unpack, so just encourage you to dive deep into Luke 3 today. Luke, he ends this account in the chapter. He brings it to close with a scene where Jesus is exalted and glorified as king in verses 15 to 22. So as I read the close of this chapter, what I I pray would happen in this moment is you go beyond just, just retaining or listening to information and in your own heart that you would exalt Christ, that you would see him and treat him like the king that he is as I proclaim God's word this morning. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. 
But Herod the Tetrarch, who'd been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Many commentators agree that the scene that's actually happening here is actually, it has roots in a a coronation ceremony. When kings would be anointed, they'd be washed and they'd be anointed God in this moment is coronating his king that has come. Recognizing in Jesus that this is the king of the universe that Isaiah had long promised that would come and make crooked paths straight and crooked people straight and straighten everything that's gone sideways in our broken world. In this coronation ceremony, God is demonstrating this is my king. It's why John the Baptist, he recognizes there's one that's coming after me that's mightier than I, and I'm not even worthy to untie the thongs of the sandal of this this king. I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. He's that great. John the Baptist is exalting Jesus. Even the father from heaven is exalting his own son and saying, this is my Beloved son, in this son, and this king, I'm well pleased. Friends, this Advent, how I pray that you would be more pleased with Jesus and that you would know deeper that in spite of your sins and every road that you've been down, that you are on, he is pleased with you. That if you could see him face to face, he'd look at you and he'd say, That's my daughter. In her, I'm well pleased. That's my son. In him, I'm well pleased because of Jesus. Man, if you believe that, that's got to enthrall your heart. How I pray, folks, I go to countries where people have nothing, nothing at all. They come to church hungry and they worship Jesus just with abandon. How I pray this news, you'd believe it a bit more and that you join the mountains and the valleys. Get in on the party. Get in on the joy of worshiping this king. Don't let your pride or what other people think of you hold you back. Don't. He's more worthy than that. He's more worthy. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to have the worship team come up here. In a moment, we're going to go to the king's table communion. We're going to receive the elements. We're going to hold in our hands the element, the bread and the cup that represent this salvation that Isaiah said that all flesh would see the salvation of God. We come to the communion table because we can repent with full assurance that no matter what we've done, that we have a forgiving king. And so there's grace this morning. Perhaps you've never come. You've never actually received into your heart Christ as your king. He loves you. 
He loves you. He came for you. You can come, you can take this bread, you can take this cup as a symbol of believing this good news about our King Jesus. You can hold that, and I'm going to come back up. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of faith this morning. Perhaps some of you, though, as you were listening this morning, the Lord pointed out that there's some roads that you've been on. You know that that road is something that it doesn't lead to life. It's not going to make you happy. Leave those roads behind this morning. There's grace for you. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we as your people this morning, Father, it humbles us that we can, because of grace, Lord, enter into your presence and stand forgiven because of Jesus, because of who he is, his life laid down, his blood poured out, our king raised up now at your right hand. Scriptures tell us, Lord, that he intercedes for us. He knows what we're facing. He knows every road we're on. Father, may we reorient our roads, our ways around your son. And Father, teach us as your people to exalt in Christ, Lord, to join with all creation in this song of praise because you are worthy, Lord, of it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.